On this episode of AvTalk, the Air Currents' John Ostrauer joins us to discuss the FAA's ungrounding of the 737 MAX, Norwegian enters bankruptcy protection, and the Korean aviation industry is undergoing very big changes. Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and welcome to episode 98. Ian, how are you feeling? I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling well, Jason. How are you feeling? I'm also well. All right. We got that out of the way. And that's episode 98. Thanks for joining. All right. Thanks for joining. No, we, we actually have news. We have news. Long There's lots of news. news that didn't come out mere minutes after we hit the stop button on the recording. This is a, a new thing for us. This is very – well, to be fair, we actually planned ahead with this one. Which is very I mean, rare for us. Very strange. Well, there's also that. So it's it's a weird week. But we heard inklings. We heard uh, small birds telling us and then there were large birds telling us as well that this was going to happen. So today is Wednesday, the 18th of November and – it has been over 600 days. 616 since the, days. Yes. Numbers have been run. 616 days since the 737 MAX last carried passengers. In those intervening 616 days, much has happened. But now comes the rescission of the emergency order of prohibition, which just sounds I don't even know what that sounds like. It's a but, fancy way of saying the order grounding the 737 MAX in the US is rescinded and the procedures to begin operations with the aircraft can now commence. There you go. That's exactly what it means. Those were the words you were looking for. Though You took it right out of my mouth. So I think it would be useful to go through a timeline. This is published by Reuters uh, a couple of days ago about the timeline of what the lifespan of the 737 MAX has been, uh, which 2017, March 8th, the 737 MAX gained FAA certification. Uh, May 22nd, it entered commercial service with Lion Air subsidiary Melindo Air. Fast forward to October 29th, 2018, and we had the first crash of the Lion Air Max killing all 189 people on board. November 13th, so a couple weeks later, the FAA and Boeing say they're evaluating the need for some software or design changes to the Max following the crash. And I don't think anyone expected quite how significant those software design changes would have to be. November 30th, Boeing weighs its plans for the software upgrade to the Max. March 10th, 2019, the Ethiopian 737 MAX crashes, killing 157 people on board. March 12th, the FAA says it will mandate that Boeing implements design changes on the MAX by April. So just the next month, March 13th, the FAA and other global regulators ground the 737 MAX, citing similarities between the two crashes. Important to note that the FAA was the, I believe, the last regulator in the world to take action and ground the aircraft following every other regulator in the world. And a whole lot happened between early 2019 and what is now late 2020, where the MAX may actually fly again by the end of the year. Yeah. So so now that we've reached not the end, but what feels like the end of the beginning, perhaps, I think we're beyond that. I think we're at the, the middle of, of the, the end. We're at the beginning of the end. Are we? I think. I okay. Hope. Well, to figure out where we are and and how we got to where we are beyond a timeline, but to, to really dig into what's been happening inside Boeing, inside the FAA, and, and at the airlines, we are going to have our, our good friend and frequent guest, the editor of The Air Current, John Ostrow, join us in a little bit to talk about all things 737 MAX. All of the changes that have been implemented, all of the changes that will be implemented as the aircraft returns to service, and really what the situation is as far as this aircraft is around the world. Uh, because this, the FAA ungrounding is just the, the first step in getting the airplane back into service worldwide. This only applies to US-based operators and to Boeing as far as delivery processes can begin. 
But you know, today Canada came out and said, well, not so fast. We're going to have some things to say about that. Brazil said, we're still looking at it. And importantly, China has said nothing. Yeah, in, most in other the past regulators have said nothing to this point. So, so we don't we don't quite know exactly where things stand worldwide, but we're going to learn more about that in a little bit when John Ostrow joins the program. But first, there is no shortage of news this week. So let's move through some of that, and then we'll bring John in for our conversation. The biggest, I think, other news that came out today is that Norwegian is filing for examinership in Ireland, which is akin to Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US where assets are are protected and, and the organization reorganizes how it does business in a way to make it more sustainable for the future. Whether that's possible in Norwegian's case, I think is is an open question. And two, how do they reorganize? I think is going to be very interesting to see as they deal with they've got 737 Max you know, in their fleet. They also have long haul aircraft that haven't operated in months. And they have a a route network that has been decimated. So Jason, what do you think? I mean it obviously it, it's been a long time coming as far as Norwegian's oh, concerned. Yes. Uh, Norwegian I feel like has been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy since the day their long haul operation started, what feels like a, a decade ago. Yeah, I mean, it, Norwegian has often been a topic of conversation on the podcast for, for for a variety of reasons, and what we've often said is that Norwegians made some questionable decisions and had a number of external factors affect their operations through no fault of their own. Yeah, Norwegian has largely been a victim of circumstances beyond its control. Just tremendous bad luck again and again. I mean, you, you've got the the seven eight seven, seven their seven eight sevens were delivered late. There then came the engine issues with the seven eight seven. Then came the seven three seven Max uh, grounding, and then came COVID, uh, among a variety of other things that have happened to the airline. So, not all is their fault, but I don't I don't know exactly how they move forward. With an expansive plan, I mean, it it seems to me that Norwegian's going to be much smaller moving forward. It, it has to be, and I think most airlines will be. But Norwegian also bit off probably far more than it could chew just by the sheer number of of the volume of what it was doing. It wasn't just an airline; it was also an aircraft leasing firm. It had a, a whole bunch of Maxes and A three twenty Neo family aircraft on order that they were acting as a leasing firm for other airlines. And that uh, that is not a good business to be in right now. So I don't know how they restructure that, really. The Norwegian we knew eight months ago is going to look very different than the Norwegian that maybe emerges from the equivalent of bankruptcy. I, I'd imagine it survives in some form, but I, I can't imagine it being at all the or even close to the size it was prior to COVID. Yeah. I, I mean, they're continuing to operate their current route network, which is very, very limited. I mean, in, in the last few weeks, they've served, I think it's less than, few, fewer than 50 destinations. So total over the past few months. So, you know, not every day of the week, but just Total fifty destinations down from you know a, a few hundred, you know at the beginning of the year. So certainly they're going to shrink. How they shrink, and, and like you said, how they operate or shed their their leasing company business will will be an interesting thing to see, and and what comes out on on the other side, and and where they still end up flying. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I enjoyed flying Norwegian. Its fares were typically at times a lot lower on the transatlantic routes and often offered routes that did not exist on other airlines. So I will be sad if Norwegian doesn't pull through this. It's, it's going to leave a hole in the market once we pull through COVID that probably won't be plugged by any other airlines for quite some time after seeing Norwegian fail so spectacularly at it. Yeah. The other thing, I mean, like you said, with with the 
Norwegians entry into the market, you had roughly, I mean, I'm not sure what kind of fair, like a percentage fair drop, but it was substantial in a number of cases. And seeing where Norwegian has pulled back, especially in the Scandinavian market, seeing fares increase dramatically there, even in the current market, where not many people are flying, and you know you still need to entice people to get on the aircraft uh, for for whatever reason. I mean, I, I think yeah, you're right. We're only going to see the the fares go up further in in other places, or, or just the rats don't exist at all. Oh yeah, I mean, when I flew out to uh, the flight radar twenty four holiday party a couple times, I flew Norwegian. I think one time through. Copenhagen and one time through maybe Oslo, or maybe that was the same trip, round trip. But Norwegian was a reasonable, I think, maybe five, six, seven hundred dollars, whereas the only other options were like in the multiple thousands of dollars for an economy trip, I think, because it always happens to coincide with the Nobel Prize week, I guess. And I guess Nobel Prize winners don't fly Norwegian, so the, pri- the prices never went up. But I, those are trips I would not have been able to take without Norwegian. Which is kind of ironic considering how many Nobel Prize winners are on the tails of Norwegian aircraft. That is a good point, isn't it? But it was always the case where if I flew Delta, I'd have to go through Paris and, and, and literally pay $2,500 in economy, whereas I was able to fly Norwegian in their premium cabin, which is basically just premium economy, for multiples less than the other airlines were charging. So. That's going to be a real shame to to see that go. And I, I've said a number of times, probably on this podcast, that the golden age of travel was right now. And I think that might actually be behind us at this point. I don't see how once we get through COVID that those low fares, uh, long haul low fares are going to be a thing. They might be absent from the market for a number of years as those airlines might not exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a frustrating thought, I think, to I mean, because you, you don't know what you've gotten until it's gone, right? So it's. I tried to tell you. You did. You did. You did. And did I listen? Kind of. You listened. Kind you of. You listened. So in Russia this week, and. Always Antonov, a good way to. Yes, yes. And Antonov AN124 suffered an uncontained engine failure. It looks like based on photos that it made contact with flying animals of some kind, birds, a small dinosaur, I don't know, in order to cause the kind of damage that it did. But it caused an uncontained engine failure of the uh, number two engine, so the inboard left side engine. That shed uh, debris in, in through the fuselage, the left wing and the right wing, and the Aircraft ended up losing a number of systems, including its uh, braking, electrical, and radio. Yeah, not great. So if you go to watch the playback of the ADSB on Flight Radar, you'll see the aircraft take off. You'll see an initial turn and then gone. No more data. So they must have had some extremely significant electrical issues on board that aircraft for that ADSB uh, transmission to stop, along with the radio, but. It's pretty much the absolute worst case scenario for an uncontained and uncontained engine failure. And thankfully, this was a cargo flight, so there were no passengers in in the way of whatever was flying through the fuselage, which is not great. But it, it very much reminds me of the American seven six seven at Chicago that it kind of flung engine parts a long distance away. I think one of the pictures I saw was a quarter mile away, some engine chunks tore through a warehouse, very similar to that incident. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When when the the American incident happened in Chicago, it one of the 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 fan, I don't know whether it was a fan blade or, or just part of one one of the parts of the engine, it skipped under the aircraft and then landed hit the gouged out a, a big chunk of the runway and then landed went through the roof of a, a warehouse. Yeah, almost a mile away. So, I mean, the parts moving at or near the speed of sound are, are going to fly farther. They'll do that. Yeah. But so, yeah, but this, this ended with a runway overrun. They made it back. 
an exemplary job by the crew uh, yes. handling what must have been an extremely degraded aircraft and getting so close to a very perfect landing. Just It's hard to stop a, a, a degraded aircraft with no brakes from running over the end of the runway, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the snow did a lot of the work there and no no serious injuries reported. So, I mean, just another, I guess, testament to the, the engineering of the AN-124 and aircraft in general and the piloting of, uh, of the crew. Do you think so, they'll fix it? I mean, I, I haven't seen any pictures of what's on the inside. That's I guess true. That's We've really, only seen the outside, which does not look good. Doesn't look great, but it looks like you could, you know, slap some duct tape on it and, and put a new engine on and maybe you'd be okay. But the the inside, I, I guess, is really what uh, what you'd be concerned or yeah, you know, what's, what's on the inside. There's of the always such high demand for these very large cargo transport aircraft that it's feasible that they may take the time and expense to, to fix it up. Yeah. I mean, that that's true, especially now. Uh, especially now. There was another confirmed incident in the past week or so with wildlife. And this one, Jason, I'll let you uh, get into the, the the details. Oh, well, pretty much the only details I know is uh, <laughs> an Alaska 737, I believe 700 in a rural Alaskan airport encountered a bear. The bear did not win. Encountered... Makes it sound like they turned on the lights and they were like, ooh, shoot, shoot, get out of here, bear. No, that's uh, not what happened. No, the the bear found its way to the engine and made very large dents in both the engine and the bear. The bear did not survive. The aircraft is fine other than damage to the engine. I have no idea how they're going to swap an engine in that rural Alaskan airport, of which I regretfully do not know which airport it was. Yeah, I. That's a good question. How would you get an engine in there? Because I don't know. Hmm. Indeed. Okay. It was Yakutat Airport. Does Does that ring a bell? Yes. That That's the, That's the airport. Okay. But now Now I'm going to be. I, I guess you're going to have to truck it in. I guess so. Or do they have roads? Or is this one of those airport or those cities that is only connected by air? I don't know. That's a really good question. Mm. This is going to definitely stick in my mind. But we know they can, can do it. We, we've seen jets land at far more rural places uh, going trans-Pacific in, in the, the uh, island chains of Alaska and, and have engines swapped out. So we know it can be done. Not, just not, not easily. It, it can be done, but those in the past, like the the American seven eight seven that landed in Cold Bay, Cold Bay's runway was built, you know, at the height of the Cold War when you wanted a bomber base as close to Russia as you could get. So, I mean, that that's going to be interesting to see how they how they end up doing that, because the the runways, the the longest runway at the airport is less than 8,000 feet long. Yes, 7,745 feet. So that'll that'll be interesting. If, if anyone is listening and has any idea how they're going to do that, please email us, podcast at fr24.com. And I'm going to do some research into this because now I'm fascinated to find out how that's going to happen. Well, I'm glad I piqued your interest. The IATA code for this particular report is also wonderful. It is YAK. Oh, Y-A-K. So it is. So that that's that's all the information I have at this point. But yeah, some interesting wildlife encounters. I, I forget there was a reporter. I forget who the reporter was, but they were looking into this, and they came across uh, something that I think Jason and I talked about probably almost a hundred episodes ago now <laughs> when we were talking about turtles at JFK. But the FAA keeps a detailed, and by detailed I mean. They can tell you the type and number of birds that were encountered by an aircraft. As long as it's reported, because oftentimes this does not get reported. But when it is, oh, you better believe they keep those records. Yeah. So so very detailed records of of wildlife encounters among among aircraft. And and I think we also talked about this when – Oh, I forget. In it, all the all of the before time runs together now. But I think it was last winter. uh, I was at National Airport in Washington D.C. and got to play with their bird cannons, which are basically just boxes that fire off 
loud cannons to to scare scare birds away, and they're they're fun. remote controlled. They are fun, yeah. Uh, and and the idea is that birds don't like them, and then they go away. The only problem with that is some of the birds uh, don't seem to care. Yeah, and since we bring up runway turtles, I I, I do want to just give a, a shout out to. Uh, Fifth Hammer Brewing, a brewery here in Long Island City, just actually released a beer called Runway Turtles. And the can art is a turtle <laughs> on a runway with an airplane waiting behind it. It's a good beer and a good name. So for those that don't know the story about the Runway Turtles, JFK Airport in New York is, I don't know if you would say this, helpfully, uh, maddeningly unhelpfully situated in a marsh. You could pretty uh, much rename it JFK International Airport and Wildlife Sanctuary. Right. And so the mating season of the turtles takes the turtles from one side of the airport to the other, often across the runway. So it's not uncommon for traffic to be halted while turtles are scurrying around the airport. That's a fact. I mean, I guess, is this like a like a thing now where if something's popular enough or or something like that you get you get a craft brewery to do a beer for it? I don't see the problem with that. I, I don't have a problem with that either. I'm just saying we need to be cool enough so someone will do a craft brewery. Yes. So uh, runway turtles are officially cool enough to have a beer named after them. We sir are not. No. Speaking of uh, cool, no, I got nothing here. And as far as the transitions go. This next thing's not cool. It's not cool. It's I, I, I st- it, yeah, well, I, good sir, I was trying my you best. You tried your best. I also know nothing about this. So. <laughs> so there's not much to say other than that it will keep the planes flying. A number of deadlines for Brexit are coming up as far as getting service agreements in place between various trading blocks, countries, what have you, and the UK as they finalize uh, their exit from the European Union. And one of those things is air services agreements. So before Brexit, the UK being part of the EU was part of all of the overarching air services agreements. So we can fly between X country, Y country, and within you know all of the, the member states. And so having left, they are now responsible for ensuring that they can fly between those countries on their own. And so this week, the US and the UK concluded an air service agreement ahead of the deadline so that you know planes can keep flying between New York and London and, and all points in between. So good news for anyone flying in between the two. Uh, is, and that's, that's really all there is to it. Fantastic. You do know a lot about the next bit we're going to talk about. And I believe, sir, you have some strong feelings. I have many feelings. So tell me how you feel about Lufthansa ditching free food. I don't like it. And I like it especially less when the airline tries to claim that it is something passengers were asking for and want and should celebrate. To rewind a little bit, Lufthansa is uh, the Lufthansa Group, actually. This is not just Lufthansa. This is the Lufthansa Group. So that would be Lufthansa, Austrian, and Swiss, I believe. They are all going to buy on board food. So no more free snack, no more free beverages, no more free booze on board Lufthansa flights starting, or Lufthansa Group flights starting uh, sometime next year. It's a phased approach. I think Austrian is first, then Swiss, then Lufthansa. And that's just disappointing. But I think uh, John Walton, who's been on the show an eon ago, summed it up well that, or maybe it was Seth Miller, I'm not quite sure, that if you reduce the quality of food to the point where it's so bad that you tease the idea of higher quality food, but at a cost, people will actually you know, respond favorable for that. And that's kind of what happened. But to, to claim that paying for a soda on board an aircraft is something passengers want is, is suspicious. I, I'm not a fan of that. So but does this just affect European this flights? This is just European flights. So nothing is changing on long haul flights. You won't have to uh, buy a mediocre half sandwich on your flight between Frankfurt and Tokyo. They will give you a mediocre half sandwich for free. Exactly. And I'm disappointed, especially with Lufthansa, as I, I felt it set them apart from the competition especially other very large airlines like British Airways. I have very fond memory of being on a Lufthansa A321 as media on a normal operating flight as media testing out their Wi-Fi system, which did not work on the flight. 
So we just went to the rear galley and kind of raided the the beer cabinet, of which there were many, many, many on board. They stocked something like three dozen beers for a two-hour fight, and we drank many of them. But that will now cost you, what, probably five euros a pop? For that beer if you're now. lucky, if, if you're, you're lucky. lucky, if you're lucky, so it's just disappointing. It's not surprising. Uh, they've been testing this with Swiss set of Geneva for quite a while, but yeah, not not great. On that note, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back with John Ostrauer and really get into where we are with the seven three seven Max and what's going to happen over the next six weeks or so as uh, airlines get ready to return the aircraft into service. So stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. We are now joined by the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, who has been with us multiple times before and always brings a lot of deep insight into both what is happening now and how it relates to the history of the aviation industry. And for that, we turn to him once again. John, thank you so much for joining us this week. Good to be back with you guys. John, welcome back. There's no one I'd rather have right now explaining this situation than you. So I'm I'm tempted just to say 737 MAX tell me a little about it. But I, I feel like that would that would take us way too far over the horizon. So let, let's just stick with what happened today. What, what actually happened today? What did the FAA do? What is the, I don't want to say legal significance of that, but regulatory significance of it? And then what's going to happen over the next few weeks in the US as US operators begin to, to get this aircraft back into the sky? Well, this moment today, so it so it's you know Wednesday, November the eighteenth, twenty twenty. Today, the the FAA officially rescinded its grounding order for the seven thirty seven Max. You know, go back twenty months ago, and the FAA was actually the last regulator to ground the airplane after the second of two crashes, the that one being Ethiopian, and that kicked off a a whole crisis which involved either the Chinese grounding the airplane and other regulators that followed, ultimately culminating with the U.S. So that over the last 20 months, effectively, Boeing has been on a sprint with, with regulators trying to identify what needs to change about the MAX to make sure that it is as safe as can be produced and delivered today. And effectively, what we, what we got was the culmination of Many different reviews, some were internal to the FAA, some were from the NTSB, some were with a, a joint technical review from international regulators, from congressional investigators, from the DOT itself. I mean, th- this process has been exhaustive in its, in its scrutiny of Boeing and how the MAX was certified by the FAA and the design that ultimately was fielded. Uh, in the flight control system, which was has been at the center of all of this since these two crashes. Today, what we got was the FAA saying, yes, the changes that Boeing is making to MCAS, uh, this is the, the system that at high angle of attack to compensate for some the, the handling of the airplane, the size of the engines and, and, and other things that we've talked about many times that essentially will bring the nose down to reduce the risk of a stall and also uh, match the handling characteristics of the older older 737s. So what Boeing did was they revised the software and they made sure uh, that that the system now uses two sensors cross-checking each other to see if there's a disagreement in the sensors because if, you know as we saw with Lion Air and Ethiopian you know, erroneous data was activating this flight control function forcing the nose down repeatedly. So we have uh, approval of that software. We have approval of the revised training uh, that goes along with this, which is different procedures for various various failures and, and non-normal scenarios in the flight control system that allow pilots to respond more more appropriately than what happened in in, in some of the it, the crashes back in uh, 2018 and 2019. And we also have approval of wiring changes to the airplane, which actually were unrelated to uh, any of the, either of these accidents which came out of the scrutiny of the airplane. There's a huge package of, of, of things that are coming 
they're going to be, you know, essentially in, installed on every single 737 MAX before it can go back in service. But first and foremost, the FAA had to do that for U.S. operated MAXs. And there are about 97 of them operated between American, United, and Southwest. So that's what starts today. Now, we have airlines that can actually go get their new training uh, systems and, and uh, training courses approved, and they can start modifying their airplanes. And over the next several weeks, we're going to see a slow march back to service. And, and that's ultimately going to culminate on December 29th with American Airlines flying between Miami and LaGuardia for the return of revenue service uh, of the MAX. So today's ungrounding, I guess, is the term that we've you know all taken to using. The removal of that order and the issuance of the Airworthiness Directive, that only covers U.S. airlines and operators and, and Boeing as, as far as you know, working on their delivery processes. But uh, I think, and you posted uh, on Twitter about some of the comments made by other regulators, particularly Canada and Brazil. And as Jason and I mentioned in a little bit earlier in the podcast, we haven't really heard from other regulators today either, notably China, which has one of the largest 737 MAX fleets in the world when you take all the, the collective Chinese uh, airlines. So, what are they doing? Are they doing anything based on the FAA's actions today, or are they still all following separate but related paths? The paths are separate, but they are related. So, they they would not be able to finish their process without the FAA finishing its own. So, as there are several, you know, what's called states of design. So, it's it's countries that have large commercial aircraft manufacturers operating in their borders. So, the U.S. obviously the most most obvious one, Boeing. Uh, you have Bombardier uh, and De Havilland in in Canada. You have Embraer in, in Brazil, and you have the European Union and Airbus. And so, what we're now going to see is a is what what the FAA administrator said earlier today was actually expected that within the coming days he said used the word days to say that that there were going to be uh, similarly reflected approvals from these foreign regulators that's not to say they're going to mirror the US they're actually going to go one step farther and we we saw that from particularly from from Canada and from the EU which expects to have slightly different training requirements uh, and also additionally uh, potentially uh, an initial switch in the in the cockpit to deactivate the stick shaker, which which will activate when the aircraft is at risk of stalling. And if that activates erroneously, there's a worry that that could distract pilots because it's actually a very violent stick shaker because it's designed to alert you to what's going on. Um, and uh, you know, and subsequently, also they're looking at adding a synthetic airspeed, which effectively is a, a sensor based airspeed rather than than using you know the the normal data that, that comes into the airplane actually use a combination of GPS and a few other and a few other f- metrics to actually generate a, a almost like a a, a virtual airspeed reading uh, in case the other sensors fail for some reason so it offers a, a backstop to that that's probably not coming until the 737 max 10 which is probably you know anywhere between two or somewhat years away given all the delays that that have kind of piled up with with, with Boeing so far, but so it's going to be a drumbeat over the over the uh, or probably the next several weeks as other uh, regulators follow suit. But as you noted, China is the big one, and China has not said anything today, and they actually are the largest Max operator on the planet. But I think they have ninety eight Maxes in storage right now in China, and so they were will ultimately represent about a third of the the Max deliveries. Just to give you a sense of how important. China is as a country to, or as a market to, to Boeing right now for the MAX. You know, China has returned to growth when other airlines have not, even, you know, amidst everything going on with COVID. And so the necessity for what China to, to recertify the MAX for Boeing is huge. But obviously, it's ne- it's, it can't be viewed in isolation. I actually had a, a piece of, several weeks ago that effectively looked at how the MAX recertification in China was going to be part and parcel of the increasing or I should say deteriorating, uh, tensions between the U.S. and China around whether it's 
involvement in the South China Sea, whether it's uh, Xinjiang or Hong Kong, concerns about about Chinese intellectual property usage. I mean, the, the list of the litany of of grievances, the the trade war, the, the, the list of grievances between these two countries is, is growing longer and longer. And as they try to work out these differences or as they move farther apart, an item like the recertification of the MAX is guaranteed to be part of that discussion in terms of when it actually comes back. So it's not just a regulatory question. So it really is a, a geopolitical question that's wrapped up in a whole different host of other factors. That is interesting and something I had not thought of until you just mentioned it. And that's why you are on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, not to get too far into this one specific thing, because I do want to focus more more broadly on on the regulatory Tory schema and what's going to happen over over the next few weeks, but just to to kind of sit in in China for a moment, doesn't not having the ability to fly the seven three seven Max in China, I mean, doesn't that also affect? I mean, given that they are the market for one third of these you know seven three seven Max deliveries, that seems like a big hole to fill. It's if, enormous if, if growth is in the offing. Then that seems like a giant hole to fill, and the lead times for you know even if they said we're going to cancel all these orders and and buy I mean I don't even know what you'd I, I guess you could go out and say Airbus we want a few thousand A three twenties, but that just doesn't seem feasible in the long run or in the medium run I guess. Or is this a boon for Comac and the C one nine one nine program? Well, I would say look at it this way. I think it this whole episode has has been been a big push to have Chinese right the Chinese regulatory structure globally have more influence. I think it has it has done that successfully. Rightly or wrongly in terms of the the zero sum nature of of the US reputation amidst that, but again, China took the lead on grounding this airplane. So it it steered things early on. I think that one of the interesting things to remember is when you think about the geopolitical consequences here, all China has to do is do nothing to inflict a, a, an increasing level of discomfort on the U.S. I mean, the Washington state where these airplanes are built and delivered out of actually had one of the sharpest declines in exports to China out of any state in the, in the nation for exactly this reason. And so when you kind of tally this up, you see these sort of you know push and pull forces at play. You know a lot of this is going to be a question of how, what the what an incoming Biden administration does around its relations with China, and and that's going to steer a lot of this. So you know it, it will be very much a question for for that kind of thread, the geopolitical thread. But to your point about about the industrial thread, right now China and Comac does not have the ability to deliver a an equivalently reliable commercial airplane at a pace that would be even close to what what Boeing or Airbus are capable of. One one sort of notable sub note uh, in all this, when Boeing actually put out uh, its revised forecast for what they thought the 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 airplane market was globally, they actually reversed course on one particular area that I thought was incredibly interesting. They actually said that the market for regional jets globally was actually going to start to grow again. And I looked closer at the data and it said, well, okay, so the estimate was that over the next 20 years last year, that there were going to be about 120 regional jets needed in China. This time around, here we are in, in 2020, uh, over 20 years, they're now saying it's 380. And so that's a huge spike in in the number that are required. Not a, I mean it's kind of law of small numbers in terms of the increase. But to to from one year to the next to, to point in that direction, it really tells you that Boeing is starting to look at China as a market that will increasingly be a receptacle and a re, and and the in the sort of crucible for its own aerospace products. Because they said, you know, I asked them directly, I said, what what do what do you attribute this to? I said, well, the ARJ21 is going to be delivered in greater numbers to the airlines. So, so you really start to see the influence of, of Chinese products on Boeing's thinking about the market there. So absent Boeing, at least in the, in the interim, does Airbus take a larger piece of this? That's not entirely clear because obviously there's 
there is a, a certain uh, ceiling that that you hit here, given the 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 need to fly internationally, or or the, or the restrictions that, that that don't allow you to fly internationally, in terms of how much growth internally to China they're actually going to need, and how much that's going to need to be filled over the next over the next coming period before the airplane is recertified. Is the Max going to be recertified in China? Almost certainly. I think the big question is when and ultimately what is going to come along with that relative to orders, to foreign policy changes, to a lot of other different factors that some has have absolutely nothing to do with aviation at all. Let's turn back to the aviation question and talk about some some practical aspects of the order that was issued today in the Airworthiness Directive. So each aircraft needs new flight control computer software, it needs new MAX display software, and it needs what is really going to take the most amount of work is the horizontal stabilizer trim wire routing. How much time are we talking about per aircraft? When Boeing first actually started the modification process for the wiring in particular, because that is the time consuming one, you're absolutely right. Um, that's the only physical change that's actually being made to the airplane mandated by the FAA right now. That was estimated to take about about five days per airplane. That's probably going to be more like three to four as they kind of get, you know, get into a rhythm at it, different airlines and also Boeing at, at its own operations to get completed airplanes out the door. You know, but, here, but here's the thing. There's Boeing's kind of mapped out a 16-day process for the airplane the, for the 450 airplanes that they have yet to deliver. And so, you know, the first part is, you know, taking the airplanes out of storage, you power them up, you start to check engine oil, you start to run the engines and you start to check out airplanes have been sitting for a while like airplanes like to fly. They're designed to fly. They do not like sitting on the ground. They get weird smells, they get birds living in them, they get all kinds of weird stuff. And there are things you have to check just to keep just to to, to refreshen it. And so, then you go into the kind of flight trial process. And then you also uh, then go into the customer acceptance process. So they're expecting that that whole process from start to finish, from depreservation to delivery is going to be about 16 days per airplane. But I think there's a really important asterisk on all of this, which is that as Boeing was was building over the over the last 20 months, they had a, they had a long pause in there. But for the 450 airplanes that were, that were built since then, um, a lot of those aren't totally done. You know, some may not have some interior fittings. So, you know, there are other, there are other things that just, it's work just, that just doesn't get completed because guess what? There was no urgency to complete it. And it's like, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, have open, what's called jobs on the airplane that are going to have to get resolved before delivery and before even customer acceptance. So these airplanes are going to, you know, in a perfect world, 16 days. However, there's going to have to be additional work done to, to each one to, to really kind of get it into a place where you can start to really call it a ready-to-go airplane. And those are just the undelivered ones. So have any of the undelivered aircraft been fitted with the revised software? Was there a point at which they switched over to that? And how are we dealing with that? Yes. So, and when Boeing says that they've had 3,000 uh, flight hours of testing of the airplane. A lot of what they mean is that when they do production flights of, of new airplanes, they're putting the latest version of the software on the airplane before it flies. Even if it's not certified by the FAA because the airplane is is not was not currently the, the certified. The airplane's not certified times, right? yeah, anyway. Right. So you can put it up there and you can kind of run it through its paces. And and Boeing has has seen that as a as an, an additional validation of of the changes that they're making. So it's kind of been rolling, but the but the reality is that that they were, I know that they were not. Last I heard, they were not doing the the latest wiring standard on the assembly line. That was as of a, about uh, three or four weeks ago, and they were actually going to wait to do it on the line once they had certification. But I know, I know for for sure that that once airplanes have come out, they've sort of been doing it as a as kind of a flight line travel to work task that you just modify the airplane out on the flight line and then get it going again. the 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 soonest, the earliest deliveries that we're going to see from Boeing are going to be airplanes that were just built. Uh, that's the ones that they're going to prioritize that are kind of at the front of the assembly line. They, everything is, you know, they don't have a weird smell from sitting, from sitting for, for 20 months in Moses Lake, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to go. And so American will probably be uh, first to take delivery of those most likely. And then um, uh, United and Southwest in uh, in rapid succession. But effectively, 
one of the key pieces here, and I, I don't want this to, to go without note, is that the FAA has rescinded Boeing's ability to sign off on deliveries themselves. That's kind of one of the, the big ways the FAA has, is exerting oversight on Boeing in the wake of everything that's happened. And so effectively, an FAA inspector is going to inspect, or an inspection team is going to inspect every single part of every single plane before it is given its FAA airworthiness certificate to be delivered. And that's about an eight-hour process from what I understand, beginning to end. And so that that obviously adds time to it, but I think Boeing ultimately wants to get to a tempo where they can do effectively an airplane a day. And by the way, if you do an airplane a day, you're into 2022. Wow. And I, I wanted to <laughs> change gears a little bit to something you had tweeted earlier today that you had asked the FAA, the administrator, Steve Dickinson, if the FAA failed to properly certify the 737 MAX. And, and he had said, I would agree with that. You would also followed up with that in saying that Boeing had not really acknowledged this. It hasn't met it hasn't agreed with that statement. Do you think that the, the corporate culture at Boeing has actually changed or are they paying lip service to these fundamental changes that they say should have happened? I think that's going to be a really important question going forward. And and the and then the most honest answer is I don't know. What we've seen demonstrably, and we saw this in in testimony from uh, both the, the former head of the program and the former chief engineer of the 737 MAX in congressional testimony was that they they still essentially would not acknowledge that Boeing was at fault. That 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 you know they said, you know, don't you think something went wrong here? And they said, no, you know, it's it's all part of, you know, you know, we, we did we did what we we followed the process and we thought we were doing it right. And they have not gotten to a point where they can when they can acknowledge that. I mean, when the FAA administrator says the FAA failed in its certification of MCAS and the flight control system and the 737 MAX, the deduction is that they failed because of their oversight and failure to catch what was a flawed design, fundamentally flawed design. You know, you can a flawed design can still come out of a a, a correct process. But also, you're, it's an indictment of the process itself. To say, well, you followed the process doesn't mean you necessarily got the right result, the, the result you wanted. So, you know, look, we've all had, you know, from an interpersonal perspective, you know, I, I think I noted this as well, that when you acknowledge and accept the thing that is causing the break in trust, only then can trust actually be rebuilt. If there's kind of this you know, we're deeply sorry, but there's sort of an asterisk hiding in the in on the on the periphery here. It doesn't ultimately rebuild the trust that that Boeing is going to need to survive going forward, because a lack of trust has a huge, huge, huge cost and a huge toll that will affect it for the remainder of this de- decade into next. And so, you know, amidst all of this. There has to be the you know, look. Airplane crashes happen for a lot of reasons, and the human factor in terms of the pilot response to the the fundamental the fundamental trigger item, which was which was the flawed MCAS architecture, is an important piece of this because it it, it tells you a lot about cockpit design and, and and other and other items. But absent MCAS, these accidents don't happen. So it has to be acknowledged at 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 some level. I hope hopefully Boeing does it loudly that they own that part of it. And that part of it was the initiating event. And so if they're going to ultimately recover from this and move forward, this is going to be an incredibly important conversation that it's going to have to have with the flying public, with its stakeholders, with regulators, you know, with its customers. That I mean, I, I think that's the real the real crux of the issue is is you 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 said, you know, finding a way to rebuild trust. I think it's it's a big difference between saying we're sorry and taking responsibility and saying we're sorry you feel that way. Is is how I'm kind of looking at it. 
Yeah. A lot of people ask, you know, we've seen these countless polls that we're mocking on Twitter and social media. Would you fly the 737 MAX again? And yeah, this is the most scrutinized aircraft probably in the history of airplanes. But I, I still feel like yeah. – since the DC-10, yeah. yeah. And, and I still do feel like Boeing has never truly acknowledged its failure here. And to me, that's that's not really reassuring, especially since they fired Muhlenberg and replaced him essentially with someone who was still overseeing the development of the 737 MAX, moved someone from the board to the CEO position. And I, that's never sat well with me. Boeing is, is outlined a, a lot of the changes that they've made internally to around safety processes, uh, oversight, and ability to, to flag flag concerns. Uh, it is sort of demonstrable examples of how they're 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 making change, and that's internal. And I think, like I said, you know, there, there's going to have to be if the administrator of the FAA again acknowledges that something has gone has gone wrong here and there was a failure. That in itself is probably the the single largest acknowledgement of accountability that we've seen in this entire episode, and it is uh, you know as far, like I said as far as the you know the view of the public goes. I mean, I have asked my my Twitter followers. I've done five different polls uh, over the last many many months, and at, at different intervals, I say you know when the Max returns to service, will you feel comfortable flying on the airplane? Not I didn't say safe. Because safe is a very is is kind of subjective, and then sort of there there are other factors like just comfortable, very very intentionally to to give us a, a sense of perception. And four out of the five of those, the answer forty percent said no, and sixty percent said yes, they would feel comfortable. There was one of those four polls that was actually reversed. It was right on the time of the the IMs, the very controversial IMs that came out from inside the company. But largely speaking, forty percent would not feel comfortable flying the airplane. And that's not to say they wouldn't buy a ticket uh, on the max if it was if it was the right price or if they had to go for that for whatever. But that's a perception issue. And over the next again, next year, five years, you know, how this airplane is received again is going to drive a lot of what comes next. And certainly the perception of the airplane will be born from the perception of its creator. And that's going to be again the one of the key pieces here as they as they move forward. And you know, look, the airplane's going to come back in service, and there's going to be diversions, and there's going to be blown tires, and there's going to be engine shutdowns, and there's going to be you know there, there's all you know stuck doors and stuff like like the normal stuff that happens and, and in that's the day to day exactly operations, that right? FAA administrator actually called out today in his video he that he's saying that these things are going to happen. Please exercise some caution in reporting about that. Exactly. And and look, we live in a social media age and there's going to be intense, intense scrutiny on this airplane, just as there was intense scrutiny on the 787 after it came back from its its grounding back in 2013. So ultimately, the best, you know, in addition to, I think, accepting the same conclusion that the FAA administrator has reached about the process and about the design, a lot of this is going to be a very long, what is hopefully a long slow and boring process of the airplane, every airplane flying day in and day out and just earning its the trust back to a point where people have more positive associations than not. And that you can't flip a switch and have that happen. You know, and, and one of the big lessons just of, you know, of the DC-10 in the grounding in 1979 was that like Boeing, McDonnell Douglas didn't really say anything at the time the airplane came back in service, they kind of let the airlines speak and let take the lead on it. It was only a, until a year later that the reputation of the airplane was still really battered and customers were avoiding it. And they decided that they needed to do something. They, so they started this big, huge media campaign around it. And all it did was serve to remind folks that the airplane had been involved in fatal crashes the year before. So there's going to have to be a sort of a, a foot on the brake, I think, historically speaking, to say, okay, you know, wherever things are in a year, the moment you put it back in the news as you're saying, hey, this airplane is safe and you start a big marketing campaign, you're going to run into the exact same problem as you did in, in 1980 when 
they, when all the, the press coverage and media coverage on TV of this new ad campaign was accompanied with footage of the wreckage from these crashes. From, and so you, you end up you know, reinforcing that. One last question for you, John. I think this is more of a marketing question, but does the Max name stay? I think it fades away. I think the Mac, it will be called the Max family of airplanes by Boeing. I think it'll become just the 737 for airlines. And I think just let it just kind of fade into the background. I mean, there at some point, there will eventually be more Maxes, assuming the backlog is fulfilled, than NGs. And so it just becomes the 737. You know, McDonald Douglas tried to rebrand the airplane. And they actually ended up rebranding another one of their airplanes to kind of move it away from the DC-10. And that was the MD-80, which started off as the DC-9 Super 80. So that was a combination of trying to bring the company together in terms of the St. Louis leadership trying to take ownership of what was going on with the commercial aircraft division. But it was also because of the DC associations that were left over from Chicago. So as you kind of dig into that, you know, I, I think, but, you know, Dave Calhoun kind of hit the nail on the head. It's you're not going to market your way out of this, you know, with, with some campaign or rebranding or whatever. But I think over time, I think the Max will probably still stick for a long time. But I think as far as an official moniker at airlines, I think it's going to fade away. I cannot wait until the 737 becomes boring again. I'm looking forward to that. When it, when it, It's just a boring airplane that you have to fly because that's what's between Chicago and New York. I'm looking forward to that. John, thank you so much for coming on and explaining all of the news today. I know you've had a long day and so we'll, we'll let you go. But, but thanks as always for joining us. We appreciate it very much. John Ostrauer, the editor-in-chief of The Air Current. Thank you, sir. Thank you, John. Thanks, guys. Always great to be with you. Welcome back. I, as always, learned a lot talking with John. And I, I think that airlines and regulators, and uh, I think most especially passengers, are, are going to have a very interesting state of things. It, I guess it remains to be seen what, what, how passengers react to the return of the MAX. And, and I think that that's really the big the big unknown, right? Yeah. So the story is not over. I, I think it is still fair to say we're at the beginning of the end here, but we are nowhere near the end of the end. All right. We'll 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 figure out whatever we're going to call this. We're somewhere. We're somewhere. We're always somewhere. In other kind of major aviation news over the past couple of weeks, the big thing has been uh, Korean Air will take over Asiana Airlines. And that is fascinating to me and also not unexpected, I don't no. think. Asiana, am I pronouncing that right? Have I always been pronouncing it wrong? Is it Asiana? I, one would assume. Okay. Asiana uh, has been struggling for, for years now. This is not, not a secret. But on the other end of the spectrum, on this uh, blog posted by Brett Snyder, Cranky Flyer, on his blog, Korean actually turned a profit the last quarter, which is surprising, but not that surprising when you consider Korean actually has a pretty sizable dedicated freighter operation. A bunch of 747 400s, 8s, 777s as well. So Korean actually has some money lying around. But this was, I don't think it was expected that Korean would gobble up Asiana at, at this exact time. But it, it does make sense, and it is going to create quite a formidable airline. Uh, Cranky crunched the numbers, and it will create the, 20, the world's 21st largest airline, the ninth largest in terms of international operations, the ninth largest operator of flights under 1,500 miles, and the seventh largest wide-body operator in the world. So suddenly, seemingly overnight, Korean just became – a global juggernaut, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, they've. I've been, you know, following a lot of the cargo stuff over the past couple of months, and they've been extremely busy. And they also have governmental support in this 
particular kind of restructuring of Korean aviation, which, which is basically what it is. And, and so I, I think that this is going to be something where they're coming at this from a, a twofold per- one is a commercial perspective right but then the other is it solves the asiana problem that's pretty much it the the market just can't sustain two major global carriers like that even with uh, korea south korea's massive domestic network remember seoul to jeju is the world's busiest route in terms of just sheer volume of passengers and it's still quite a a huge chunk. I think uh, Cranky said Korean's domestic revenue was 24% just from domestic operations in the third quarter of 2020. That is huge for a small country. Yeah. And especially given the current circumstances, though South Korea has done much better at at dealing with COVID than a lot of other countries. So they've begun the process. I think there are still lots of uh, approvals to go through, uh, and then the actual consolidation process will take place. I think in 2021 is when you'll start to see things actually kind of come together. And it sounds like they're going to keep both airlines operating, both brands operating. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they end up doing that. Right. And there's not a ton of fleet harmony between the two. They do both operate the, or did operate the A380. We'll have to see I, how I that- was going to say there's a lot of harmony in retiring the A380. Yeah, exactly. So they, they, they'll they probably both agree on that. But while Korean went with the 787-9, Asiana went with the Airbus A350. So that is not totally, not totally aligned. And most of Asiana's narrow body fleet is uh, Airbus, while Koreans is Boeing. So that's uh, not a ton of fleet harmony going on there. Yeah, and it's something that I'm sure they'll address over time, especially with taking older aircraft out of the fleet and, and things like that. But if American it, it, can do it, Korean can do it. I was just going to say, if American get get down to what we talked about last time, four fleet. Families, then I'm sure Korean will be able to to manage just fine. Some encouraging news out the past couple weeks with vaccine trials, uh, COVID vaccine trials, and their effectiveness and things like that. That's very encouraging on a general scale. One of the things that that we've been looking at, and John Walton did a, a great Twitter thread that. I'll toss in the show notes because it's worth reading in its entirety. But we're discussing, you know, the we talked a few episodes ago about the a report came out. Uh, I forget who who wrote it, whether it was uh, IATA or somebody said we're going to need eight thousand seven four sevens to to oh, transport God, the vaccine. That stupid thing. No, you need eight thousand flights, not eight thousand airplanes. Right, right, or and, something and like that. Yeah, it, it, and so the idea was that you know you're going to need to transport a lot of vaccines. Obviously, they won't manufacture all of it at once. That's not how it works, and they won't need to transport them all at once. That's also not how it works. But another wrinkle that was less talked about at the time, but is getting a lot more attention now, is how the vaccines need to be transported. One of the issues is the temperature at which the vaccine needs to be transported and stored uh, before it is used for it to remain effective. And the first vaccine that was in the news last week was the the Pfizer-developed vaccine. And the issue there is it needs to be transported at something like negative 70 Celsius, which is colder than most storage and, and aviation you know, transportation systems are used to doing things at. So there are some unique challenges there about keeping the, uh, the vaccine cold enough while it's being transported. And there was an interview with Cargo Lux's CEO where he was talking about that uh, and, and some interesting things there. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. The second vaccine that um, showed some promise 
was the uh, Moderna vaccine, but that only needs to be stored at negative 20 Celsius, which only. is well in the range. <laughs> yeah, only stored at negative 20 degrees Celsius, but that's well within the range of existing transportation, aviation transportation infrastructure. So certainly something that that is very encouraging there. Yeah. So there's a uh, great video of, of published a month ago from Wendover Productions detailing this exact situation, uh, uh, distributing the COVID vaccine in extremely low temperatures. And it goes quite in depth about the support, the, uh, the transport chain and the struggles of, of shipping something at this temperature and how the supply chain just really wasn't built for that, uh, but how many different chain, uh, pieces of the chain have been upgraded, including airlines, in expectation of this exact scenario. So it, it'll be interesting to see how how things ramp up, uh, especially when a vaccine or vaccines are approved and then how it's distributed. And, and we'll certainly be following that very, very closely. On the heels of that, Boeing issued their world air cargo forecast this week, and they're looking at 4% growth in the air cargo market you know, year over year, saying that uh, for the next 20 years, and then uh, you know, there's more cargo aircraft. We need more cargo aircraft. Airplane uh, seller says more airplanes yeah. need to be sold and converted by both. Yes. So, but that the actual the, the numbers is not what I wanted to talk about because, as we've talked about before, studies commissioned by people that have a vested interest in the outcome of the studies, not exactly known for uh, for their. I don't want to call it not reliability, but outside. Um, Influence, but the moral of the story here is we're looking at other airlines investing in combi aircraft and, and things like that, and also converting things like the triple seven three hundred. So that'll be you know a very interesting to see how much of this goes to purpose built dedicated freighters and how much of it comes from converting existing passenger aircraft. And I, I feel like the latter is going to be the clear winner here. That we might get our hands on a triple seven three hundred ER if Wait, if we play our cards it. right, Jason. Let's do it. Let's close the show with a quick happy birthday to Qantas. Qantas turned one hundred years old this week, so uh, they celebrated with a special flight for one hundred invited guests aboard a seven eight seven over Sydney Harbor and and the bridge and and all that good fun stuff. So here's here's hoping they uh, had a nice time given the times we are in. But happy birthday, Qantas! Happy birthday, Qantas! Let's hope your hundred and first birthday is better. There we go. We'll, we'll celebrate properly then. This has been episode 98 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.